Hello, my name's Deborah Thames. Welcome to class. This is Breast Cancer Pathology Reports. I have worked for Advanced Health Education Center for about 12 years, and I'm glad to have you today, and I hope you enjoy this course. We're going to be talking about um, the pathology reports with breast cancer surgery, dissections. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome. So what is pathology? Well, pathology from Greek pathos is a feeling or pain or suffering. And ology, as we know, signifies a study of. So pathology is a study and diagnosis of a disease through examination of organs, tissue cells, and bodily fluids. The term encompasses both the medical specialty, which uses tissues, and bodily fluids to obtain clinically useful information, as well as scientific study of the disease process. Now, a little bit of history of pathology. The history of both experimental and medical pathology can be traced to the earliest application of the scientific method to the field of medicine. It's really a development which occurred during the um, Western Europe in the Italian Renaissance. So most pathologists were practicing physicians or surgeons. Like other medical fields, pathologies become more specialized with time, and most pathologists today do not practice in other areas of medicine. For one, um, facilities do want you to be specialized. They want you to be dedicated to that specialty so you get really good at it. And number two, they really don't have time. Now, the early um, famous pathologists, there's no true documentation on autopsies performed before the Renaissance age of 1325 through 1600. So Antonio Benigni, excuse me, um, that's a hard word, <laughs> uh, between 1443 and 1502 was the first physician to do an anatomic dissection to determine the cause of death. And he was Italian, of course. You could tell by his name, it's very hard to say. But he was the most famous uh, gross pathologist at the time. And still the name, um, you can hear it through history books and uh, especially medical history books. Um, so his name is very common. Now, how much education is needed to become a pathologist? Well, pathologists are physicians who diagnose and study diseases. They have significant educational requirements that include completing medical school, residencies, and possibly fellowships, along with earning a license. So medical programs require both classroom coursework and hands-on training. Now pathologists must be precise, knowledgeable in science, and able to work under pressure. So they need four years of college to get, of course, their bachelor's degree. They need four years of medical school to get the doctor of medicine degree, MD. They need four or five years of residency, four for anatomic pathology only, or five for the combined anatomical clinical pathology. And of course, that later part is recommended, recommended that they get five years of residency. And then they become eligible to take the boards in pathology. Now, the average income um, last year in 2016 was $177,000, which is not a lot of money for 
um, the education that they have to get, the stress uh, relations that is comes with this job title of pathologist. It's a high demanding job. So how many different pathology specialties are there? Well, just to say a few, there's anatomical pathology, cytopathology, dermatopathology, forensic pathology, histopathology, neuropathology, pulmonary and renal pathology, surgical pathology, clinical pathology, radiation pathology, immunopathology, molecular pathology, uh, hemopathology, and oral maxillary pathology. Those are just a few. There's more, um, but these are the most popular ones. So there's multiple, multiple specialties that are out there, which I think is great. It gives the doctor choice of um, what they are interested in the most. And of course, that's where they do their fellowships. And um, I think it's great that they can choose um, with so many different ones, kind of like x-ray. You can choose uh, CT, you can choose ultrasound, you can choose MRI, mammography, diagnostics. There's many specialties that you can um, be dedicated in. Now this is Zacharias Jansen, and um, he had developed the first compound microscope in 1590. And there's a picture of him, and that microscope um, is quite interesting. It's very plain, uh, but it worked. It is that's all they knew back then. But it it did uh, magnify um, using one eye. Of course, it magnified um, the areas that they were looking in. Now, this is a um, museum that had some really old microscopes. I love these images. There's four there that are very um, odd looking. One's very um, fancy with the gold on the bottom that you could see. But they didn't, uh, they didn't magnify very well. They, that's what they knew back then. That's all they had. But I find, I love museums. I find it very interesting with the older medical equipment that they've used. Now, British researchers from the University of Manchester helped develop the instrument, which had broken all records for magnification of small objects using ordinary white light. So the microsphere nanoscope is capable of examining objects as small as 50 nanometers across. And that's 20 times smaller than the present limit for optical microscopes. So to give you some ideas about a nanometer, we're going to talk about that a little bit. But first, a nanometer is one one millionth of a millimeter. And a human hair is one-tenth of a millimeter. So you can imagine um, how exciting that this breakthrough was with this research. One nanometer is to a tennis ball what a tennis ball is to the earth. And this was 50 nanometers that they broke through with this special white light. So let's talk about nanoscience. Well, one human hair, as we know, is 50,000 50, nanometers across, or 50 nanometers is one one thousandth the width of a human hair. 
Now one bacterial cell measures a few hundred nanometers across. The smallest things the naked eye can see are 10,000 nanometers. And one nanometer equals 10 hydrogen atoms in a line. So that just kind of puts it in perspective. So you can see this image here, and I like people to try and think about it, look at it, and what is it? You know, what is this an image of? And this is looking at the special um, microscope with the nanometer, and this is an image of a virus cell. I think it's quite interesting. It's kind of ugly, um, and viruses aren't fun either. So to have, but it's, it's really interesting, almost looks monstrous like. Now surgical pathologist, surgical pathology is the most significant and time consuming area of practice for most anatomical pathologists. Surgical pathology involves a gross and microscopic examination of surgical specimens, as well as biopsies submitted by non-surgeons such as general internists or medical subspecialists, dermatologists, inter interventional radiologists. Generally recognized subspecialties of surgical pathology include the following. So we're gonna talk about those, the practice of surgical pathology, which allows for a definitive diagnosis of disease or lack thereof in any case where tissue is surgically removed from a patient. This is usually performed by a combination of gross and histolic examination of tissue. It may involve e um, evaluations of molecular properties of the tissue by immunohistochemistry or other laboratory tests. So you could see the specialties with the surgical pathologist, and it can even go deeper into special specialties. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit later on. So surgical pathology workflow, they look at the gross examination, the frozen section, fixation and embedding, histopathologic examination, ancillary testing, and the surgical pathology report. And then, of course, they can have a direct consultation. Usually the reports go directly to the physicians that's requested it or oncologist. Um, and then the report is given to the patient by uh, the um, physician who could sit down and explain the report. So the patient would understand it, of course. Now, different types of breast pathology reports. Well, they can read outside slides for patients who are requesting a second opinion. They can also read specimen slides taken from FNAs or fine um, needle aspirations. They also can read specimens taken by core biopsies, like possibly by 14, 16, 18 gauge needles. Also, there's large core biopsies like with stereo biopsies for the breast or MRI biopsies. Those can be 9 gauge, 11 gauge, 12 gauge. The largest on the market for stereotactic biopsies is 7 gauge. That's by Bard. They also can read specimens taken from segmental mastectomies or what's called... Um, uh, 
lumpectomy or partial. There's many different names to segmental mastectomies. Or they can read specimens taken from mastectomies. So they document the cancer or if that mastectomy had cancer. Some mastectomies are, as we know, are um, uh, taken when there isn't cancer. So we're also gonna talk about those type of surgeries. So why Nottingham grade? Well, there's different scoring systems available for determining the grade of breast cancer. So one of these systems is the Nottingham Histolic Score System. It's also the Elston-Ellis Modification of Scarf Bloom Richardson Grading System. It can change names as it gets upgraded. In this scoring system, there are three factors that the pathologist take into consideration. One, the amount of gland formation, what they call differentiation, or how well the tumor cells try to recreate normal glands. And in differentiation, it's change or undifferentiation. Our cells are not specialized. Number two is the nuclear features, the pleomorphism, or how ugly the tumor cells look. And then, of course, the mitotic activity, how much the tumor cells are dividing, which they call proliferation. So these are um, divided by the Nottingham. This is the most popular one used uh, by the pathologist. There's other grading systems, but the Nottingham one is um, the largest one used out there. Now, pathology report um, reported by pathologists this has to present a picture from the inside to better serve the case for the patient. So the reports must state the specimen, the clinical history of the patient, clinical diagnosis, gross description, microscopic description, special tests or markers, and then the summary or what they call final diagnosis. So this is all that's on the report. Uh, pathology reports are very descriptive. It, they can be multiple, multiple pages. It can take a long time to um, make these reports. So we're going to go over some, of course, at the end here. But um, I want you to learn um, why they, they report the way they do and how different it is per different types of pathology um, specialties. But today we're talking, of course, pathology reports for breast cancer. So one FNA biopsy pathology reading, FNA is fine needle aspiration. This is usually uh, done in an ultrasound department, or you can have an FNA clinic that um, that's all they do all day um, for different type of tumors. But um, you have, of course, a sterile setup with gauze, sterile soap, syringes, hypodermic needles. An ultrasound room is usually typically has a few monitors in it, one for the patient, one for the doctor, and a stretcher, and then of course, ultrasound equipment. So FNA procedure, you could see that um, there's a syringe with a hypodermic needle and there's fluid there and uh, it's being drawn up out of the breast. This is on a breast with the transducer. Our doctors also do these. Um, our radiologists that specialize with breast, um, but um, sometimes the technologist is in there guiding 
the radiologist or sometimes the radiologist just um, takes a transducer and, and does it by themselves. And you could see there that this uh, physician is using the transducer and um, sometimes they do numb the patient uh, before they do it. Some, it depends on where, where they're biopsying at, how deep it is in the breast. And then the cytopathology department's called and they come right over, they're right there in our, our area. I know not everybody works the same, but usually that's how it is. Because with FNA, they're gonna be reading cells and not tissues. So you need a specialist like a cytopathologist to read these cells to see maybe if later on that, um, right after they view these cells that, hey, this possibly probably cancer, you need to get a, a tissue. You need to get more information so we can get estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 and um, more information about the tumor. So most facilities that do FNAs will have a cytopathologist nearby to tell them, hey, you can stop now, this looks totally benign, is it concordant with your diagnosis um, or prognosis, is it coordinate or not? And if it's not, many times, even if it is benign, they'll go ahead and do a large core biopsy anyway. Now, FNA samples can be obtained in under a minute usually. Full procedure times run approximately 10 to 15 minutes. And if there's an on-site lab, preliminary results are usually available within 15 minutes. Otherwise, full results can take one to up to five days. Depends on how many patients you're doing a day. Larger facilities, it takes longer because they're doing multiple, multiple patients. And some facilities will do it that same day. Now, indications for fine needle aspiration, confirming a benign looking lesion determining malignancy of a node. When staging a known breast cancer and there are satellite lesions, an FNA should be done to not get malignant cells in the large core biopsy to get, give you false readings. So an FNA is more direct. Contraindications, why not to do an FNA? A suspected malignant lesion. If you do suspect it's malignant before you start, you do need to do a core biopsy to get more information about what kind of breast cancer is it and the markers of it. Also a suspected invasive lobular carcinoma. It can grow in lines and it can skip cells. So you want definitely a larger core biopsy so you don't get false readings on that also. And some large fibrinomas, why? Because it can be medullary carcinoma. It can look just like a fibrinoma. So sometimes our radiologists will biopsy large fibrinomas just to rule out medullary carcinoma because they look the exact same. So fine needle aspiration. Um, if indicated that it's okay, um, that you can proceed with it, that's fine. But if it's um, not, then you go to ultrasound core biopsy. Now, ultrasound core biopsy is done on a lesion is identified and targeted with the use of ultrasound. A large needle is then advanced to the site where the needle is fired and a specimen is retrieved. Now, this process is repeated until the physician is satisfied that the area has been properly sampled. Usually it requires three to six cores, and those are usually done 
with a 14, 16, or 18 gauge. That's why you have to take multiple cores. Well, if you use a um, vacuum-assisted device, the needle remains in place while the cores are acquired when they would maybe turn the device a little bit to get the surrounding tissue. So ultrasound core biopsy, the goal of it is that identical to stereotactic biopsies to obtain tissue samples for the pathologist to determine histology and tumor markers. And I know the patients um, usually say, well, aren't you gonna take the whole thing out? No, a biopsy is just to sample the areas, not to obtain the whole area and take it out. So they usually get concerned with this, but the radiologist usually assures them this is you know, we usually get 50 to 70% of the area to get a fine definition. So the whole purpose of biopsy is not to take out the whole area. Now, ultrasound capabilities focus more on masses and distortions. Calcifications are harder to see under ultrasound, especially the micro calcifications. So coarse calcifications are easier seen, but the micro ones are not under ultrasound. So ultrasound core biopsy setup, this is typical. Um, of course, it's in a sterile envi environment. You have alcohol and uh, sterile soap and gauze. And then they have a, a piece of gauze to put the specimen on in case even they want to x-ray it before they put it in the formalin. So you have your uh, syringes with your hypodermic needles. And then you have different choices of um, the core biopsies. And it just depends on what your system you have at your facility. Your doctors get comfortable with a certain system and that's usually typically what they use. This image is a ultrasound core biopsy procedure under um, ultrasound guidance with the transducer. And this is a larger core biopsy. This is a 10 gauge um, vacuum assisted device. There's multiple ones out there. Um, that can be done under ultrasound guidance to get uh, tissue information for the pathologist to run, uh, read. This is a smaller core. This is an 18-gauge core needle. The, this type of biopsy, as you see in the image, it, they take multiple passes because it is smaller, but you can get less bleeding or a smaller area or a smaller breast. It just depends on what you're biopsying, what type of your equipment that you use and what your radiologists are comfortable using. So this is a specimen of cores taken with the 18 gauge core needle. They put it on the gauze and separate it because they also wanted to see if they uh, retrieve some of the calcifications. So once in a while before these core biopsies go into the formalin, they'll take it over to the specimen um, device and take an image for the patient's um, records to retain just to prove that yes, that we did get some calcifications or no, we didn't. Sometimes they'll go back in to get more. If they really want a mass with calcifications, um, they'll go back in. So ultrasound core biopsy, a lot of room time, usually around average in the United States is 30 minutes. Obtaining cores can take on average five minutes with the remainder time spent positioning, 
the patient and localizing the lesion. Results can be different around the United States, just depends on how busy you are at your facility. If you um, do less patients, usually one or two days, but if you do more multiple patients, it could take between three and five business days. Indications for ultrasound core biopsy, patient has a suspicious mammogram, ultrasound or MRI documenting a mass or asymmetry, or a patient has a palpable lesion. Contraindications for ultrasound core biopsy, if the patient has taken heart medication, usually procedures postponed because um, you don't want them to bleed or um, have problems with it, or if the patient's already been diagnosed with breast cancer in the same breast, you maybe want to do an FNA, or if patient is unable to withstand the procedure due to high anxiety or refusal of a biopsy, um, patient could be in denial. Um, sometimes we do reschedule a patient and bring them back with um, meds that they can take to reduce their anxiety levels. Did you enjoy this podcast? The remainder of this course is available via our famous webinar program. To view our course schedule, just visit us online at www.aheconline.com or give us a call at one 800 239 one three six one. See you soon.